Well, I, just so you know, I have a cold uh, this morning, so if, um, if I don't come across as real excited or a lot of energy, I really am, okay? I'm really, really excited, even if it doesn't seem like it, okay? So just, I may sniffle, I may sneeze, I may cough, just, just hang with me. And, uh, and I, I really, um, really am excited about, <clears throat> excuse me, what God's given me this morning, what he's laid on my heart. Um, I, I have a tendency when I do series, if you guys just figured, have you figured this out, I do a series and then I do a series within a series. And, uh, and so our series is being salt and light. And in our series in a series, I am, uh, I'm focusing it in now on the Christmas time and on, um, on, on being salt and light in our neighborhoods, being salt and light in, in our neighborhoods. Just going to get real, real practical in, uh, in, in the Christmas message and what the Lord is wanting to do is us to be salt and light. About three, four weeks ago, on a Saturday night, it was about 10.30, um, I think I had just um, watched um, OU uh, win a football game, which is a, a common you know, practice in, in, in our house. I just had to kind of just throw that out there um, for since I'm the only OU fan, I guess, in the church. Um, but, you know, watching them uh, win a football game, and uh, my doorbell rings at 1030 at night. And, um, you know, if you're like me, like, you know, most Americans, when your doorbell rings, you cringe, right? Because you know it's not Amazon at 1030 at night, right? And you're like, oh, no, what's that going to be? And, you know, you try to hide, but you can't because you have dogs and you have lights on in the house. So, you know, people... Know that you're home, right? So you, you just got to just, you know, go check the door. So, so I go and I check the door, and I notice that the, I know the person at the door. She is our, our neighbor, Caddy Corner, across to the left. And so, she, so I open up the door, and I said, I said what, what's going on? And, uh, and she told me that, she began to tell me that she's a nurse. She began to tell me that the neighbor across the street, uh, who's an older gentleman, um, that he had a he was, he was stuck in his bathtub, and he, he couldn't get out. And so as your, as your godly pastor and spiritual leader, my first thought was, why me? Why me? Aren't there people paid to do this? They drive ambulances, you know? There's, I, I say that. Should he call an ambulance? And she goes, no, he doesn't want to do that. He, he's asked if you'll come help him get up out of the tub. His wife and I aren't strong enough to do that. And, and so, of course, you know, of course, I agree. And, and so I go over there, I help him up and help him get to bed, help his wife get pajamas on him and get him situated. And he was able to go to the doctor the next day and get, get liquids, and, and he's, he's okay now. And, and the, the, the reason this is so interesting is because I had been asking for the Lord to give me opportunity to minister to my neighbors. That wasn't what I had in mind, if you know what I'm saying. But I'll tell you, my neighbor and I, we now have this connection now that I've seen him naked. Like, you just do. You just see somebody naked, you just got this connection with them. You just do. Um, and so, so he's given me opportunity to minister. And so this, this passage has been on my heart for the last several weeks that I'm going to share today. And, and what we're going to do is we're going to make the Christmas message real, real practical this morning. We're going to take it from the, from the hypothetical, from the theological, uh, to the very, very practical. And let's go to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, as you, uh, as you look at the Gospels, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 
as you look at those, there are some scholars say one way to, to look at it is to think of them as four different angles on the same thing. So if we were to have each of us were to go to one side of the church and we were to draw out or to list or write what the church would look like, uh, those of you on the north side would, would write what it would look like on the north side and the south side, the east and the west side. So there'd be different descriptions, but there would be commonalities like red brick, like a roof, like 1120 east a Plainview Road, you know, there'd be these commonalities, yet these differences. And that explains why the Gospels are different. They're all accounts of Jesus' life, but from four different perspectives. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're like being on a kayak headed down a river where there's white water, and it's fast, and it goes all different directions. You just kind of follow the story as it goes from miracle to miracle, from story to story. The book of John is much slower. It's like a canoe on a lake. And, and you, you look at all, you go slow and you look at these theological aspects and it's like John's pointing out rock formations here and a fish catching a, uh, uh, some insects here to eat. Or you just, it's like this, this, this view of, of the majesty and the goodness of God and these deep theological things. And it's just a different pace. And as we look at John chapter one, it says, in the beginning was the Word. This is the Logos. This is the Word of God. This is actually Jesus himself. And in the beginning doesn't necessarily refer to when, when creation happened. It's, it's from eternity past. So in the beginning, before there was even anything, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him, speaking of Jesus, the Word, through him all things were made, Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life, this Zoe life, this eternal life, this quality of life was the light of all mankind. So we're talking about salt and light. So the life of Jesus is the light of all mankind. This is why in Christmas, uh, the lights are so an important part of the Christmas story, because Jesus is the light of the world. This light, the light shines in the darkness darkness of evil, the darkness of this world, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, speaking of John the baptizer. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, Jesus, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. Verse 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Speaking of Jesus, speaking of his incarnation, of coming, of God becoming man. He was in the world, though the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, the Jewish people, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, the name of Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, I know it's often, um, the, you, you may hear phrases like, well, we're all children of God. And, and I, I really, I truly understand the heart behind a phrase like that, meaning that we're all God's creation, that we're all you know, equal before him. We all have value, which is all absolutely true. But we need to understand that, that you're really not a child of God until you've been born into the kingdom of God, until you've been adopted into the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so although that phrase that we're all children of God is well-meaning, the, re the theological reality is that we become children of God by putting our faith and trust in Jesus himself. 
Verse 13, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. Verse 14, this is the crux verse for today. The Word became flesh. Jesus became flesh. The Word of God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. I love the way the message puts it. The message translation, or paraphrase, Eugene Peterson wrote this. He said, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Turn to your neighbor and said, moved into the neighborhood. Say that to him. Say, moved into the neighborhood. That's what Jesus did. He moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory of, with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. I love this passage. I love this aspect of John who gives us this huge, huge theological parameters and understandings of the incarnation of Christ who God himself condescended and came in the form of a man, took on human flesh and blood and identified with us so that he could be our high priest, so he could be our mediator, so that he could be the holy spotless lamb of God who could die in our place and to take up all the sins of the world upon us. It's, it's so powerful. It's so so big, so large a theological concept, it's so even hard for us to grasp, isn't it? God himself became man and took on flesh. 100% God and 100% man at the same time in one being? I mean, it, it blows my mind. I, I can't fully understand it. And I think because we can't fully understand this concept that so often we... We focus on the divinity side of it, on the God side of it, on the divine side of it, because that can be mystical, and because we don't understand it, it can, be, it can be philosophical. But yet, I think sometimes we do injustice by not considering fully the humanity of Christ, the humanity that, that he was tempted in every way that you and I are tempted, that he suffered in every way that you and I suffer even greater because he took the sins of the whole world upon himself on the cross and he died for you and I so that he could identify with us so that we know that even now he's at the right hand of the Father making intercession for you and for I that no matter what is going on, he understands. And he lived a spotless, a, a a clean life. He, he divulged himself. He, he, he separated himself. He did not pick up what was due him, what was available to him as God himself. It's what Philippians tells us that, that, that he, he, he laid aside those divine privileges and he walked as a man on this earth under the power of the Holy Spirit. And all that he did, he did under the power of the Holy Spirit to show us, to model to us a life that's dependent on the Spirit of God. And as we fully consider that, it's significant when we see here that he became flesh and blood. Slap yourself. Slap your neighbor. Yeah. Just real flesh and blood. I mean, he really did. And he moved into the neighborhood. He had an address. He had a workshop. He was a son of Joseph and Mary. He was a brother James, he was probably an uncle. 
I mean, he was 100% God, but still 100% man. And we begin to think about this, it begins to help us understand that, that Christmas is not just theological. Christmas is practical. That God moved into the neighborhood. He came here to be with us. Emmanuel, God with us. But we know that Jesus died on the cross. He ascended. He rose into heaven. And he sent his Holy Spirit to fill us, to empower us. And so we know now that Jesus resides in us. That through him, we are the light of the world. That he, he has made, we, we glorify him through our works. We glorify our Father and that he has placed us strategically. Imagine for a moment with me that Jesus really knows what he's talking about. Imagine that God really, really knows what he's doing. I'm talking beyond philosophy. I'm talking practically. That instead of having us all live in holy communes, that he has spread us all out in different neighborhoods, different parts of town, different jobs, different schools, different places. What if he did this so that you and I can be the light to the world, so that you and I can light up our neighborhoods, so that you and I can be the hands and feet of Jesus in our neighborhood in a very, very practical sense? When Jesus moved here in flesh and blood, when he moved from heaven to earth, he really moved in. He really moved in. I mean, he was 100% in. He really moved in. Let me, let me ask you this question. Have you really moved into your neighborhood? Do you view it as temporary? I'm just going to be here for a few years. It's just the next stop on the road. But regardless of how long you think you're, you're going to be there, have you really moved in? I know the neighborhood that we moved in a couple years ago, we've had the sensing that God is really wanting us to understand what it's like to really be neighbors. What it really, I didn't know what all it meant, I promise you. But, but we really sensed that we want, God was wanting us to be just really neighbors. That there was a divine sending to this part of town, just a few blocks away, of being neighbors. But what is a neighbor, right? What, what, what is a neighbor? Let's go to Luke chapter 10. Turn with me to Luke chapter 10. Part of it's on the slides up here. Luke chapter 10, there's a, a, a familiar parable. A parable is a story. So we have the parables of Jesus. And one of the ways, a great way to, to interpret a parable is a parable basically has one point, uh, has one idea. It's trying to get across through a story. And when you read parables, this is, this is a great way to do it. Imagine that you're in the crowd, wherever the parable's being told, just stop when you read a parable and just, just read the context of it, see what it is. And pretend like Jesus is there talking and that you're standing over somebody's shoulder, right? And you're on your tippy toes, kind of looking in and listening to what's going on. That you're observing Jesus telling this story. And when you do that, I just believe he continues to just, just really just re- begin to reveal aspects of it. And, and, and so that's, that's, how I, that's how I read a story is just trying to really just listen to what's going on. And so verse 25, on one occasion... An expert in the law, which means an attorney, an attorney who specialized in the, in the law, the, the words of God, but the law aspect of the Old Testament. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Now, in the context of this day, a rabbi, a teacher, would have been seated 
Well, the pupils would have been around him, and then if there was a question, a, a comment, they would stand. But we know that when he stood, he stood to test. And so it was in his body language, it was in his tone, it was how he came across that, 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 uh, that, that Luke, the author of this, um, knew from, uh, from accounts later, was described to him that this had been done in such a way that was a test, test to him. And he says this, teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, remember, this is an attorney speaking, right? So he knows the law. He knows all the, the, the dimensions of the law, the facets of the law. And so let me just pass this question on to you. What do you have to do to get an inheritance? He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What do you have to do to get an inheritance? Let me ask it this way. Can you do anything to get an inheritance? The answer is no. You don't, an inheritance in itself is basically a gift. You have to be in the will. You have to be a child, a grandchild, a beneficiary of something to receive an inheritance. So even the way it's questioned, even the way he's coming across is faulty, because he's asking, how do you do something? How do you do, how do, you do something to get eternal life? He says, what must I do to, to get eternal life? How do I earn eternal life? And I love what Jesus does. This is a pattern that Jesus has where he's asked a question, and very rarely does Jesus answer a question. So often he, he, he answers a question with a question, and he does this again in this story. So he asked the lawyer, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? Well, he's saying, you're an expert. You know the law. What do you think the law says? And so the, the attorney answered him. And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, Bingo, winner, winner, chicken dinner, right? You got it right. Jesus replied, now do this, do all of that, and you'll live. Do all of that, you'll have eternal life. You'll have lived perfectly. If you love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you love your neighbor as yourself. He basically was saying, what do I have to do? Actually, what do I have to do to earn eternal life, to get eternal life? Jesus says, well, you tell me. He tells him, yeah, do that. He knew he couldn't do that. He knew he could not fully fulfill the law. And because he could not fully fulfill the law, he needed to justify himself. So even he understood that you need to be justified. And so he, he, he asked him again. He says, but he wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? I mean, he's an attorney, right? He's getting into the fine print. So, who's, well, so Jesus, how do you define the fine print of what a neighbor is, because if I have to do this, I want to know what it is that the minimum standard is of what I have to do. It sounds like an attorney, doesn't it? Of what I have to do. Sorry, Scott, my brother-in-law is an attorney, and he's, he's here this morning. But uh, what is the minimum I have to do to get this to be done so that I can fulfill this obligation so that I meet the requirements of the contract? This is an attorney. I mean, this is attorney language. This is, this is, this, this is what he's saying, because the attorney knew that the Old, more the Old Testament definition of neighbor would have been those that would have been Jewish, would have been like-minded, would have been close proximity. He had this preconceived definition of what neighbor was, 
And so once again, he was trying to trap Jesus to see if Jesus would have an answer that's different than what the law would say, because the law would have had more of a neighbor, it would have been a Jewish person, but yet the law also gave um, um, instruction that you were supposed to do something for the alien. You're supposed to have outreach to the alien. You're supposed to welcome the alien among you. So is your neighbor somebody like you or somebody different than you? How do you define that? He's trying to catch Jesus in this legalese, and he's totally missing the point of it all. And so he asks Jesus this question, and Jesus replies with this other question. Then he asks him a follow-up question of who is my neighbor, and then Jesus replies with a story replies with the story. And so the story uh, that he replies with is the story of the Good Samaritan, which you're familiar with. And the story is given to answer what question? Who is my neighbor? Remember, that's the question, who is my neighbor? And so he tells a story of a man, a certain man, probably would have been a Jewish man, although the story doesn't tell us that, but it's implied that a Jewish man was going from Jerusalem down to Jericho. It would have been descent and elevation, about 12 miles. And he's going down, and on the way down, he is attacked, he's robbed, he's beaten, he's left half dead, and he's, he's just left on the side of the road. First, in this story, first comes a priest who would have been finishing his priestly duties. Many of the priests would have lived down near Jericho, and so he would have finished his priestly duties. He was on his way back. This would have been the epitome of those of piety and holiness. It would have really set the standard in compassion. And so as he's coming down, it, he, he doesn't respond to this man's needs. We, we don't know why. The story doesn't tell us. We don't know if it had to do because of his ritual purification. Maybe he wasn't Jewish. Uh, we, we don't know the why, but we know the what. And the what was he did not minister to him, but he passed him by, actually went to the other side of the road to distance himself from this person. And then Jesus tells a story of a second person, which would have been a Levite, which would have been the, those that were a larger group than the priest of those that serve in the temple. So it had been like the second highest level spiritually and uh, piety-wise. And so, so he's, he's on this, this, this Levite's making his way down. He sees the same thing. And again, Scripture doesn't tell us why um, he passes him by, but, but maybe it was because he knew the priest already came, and if the priest didn't help him, well, maybe he wasn't worth help. Or maybe if he helped him and the priest hadn't helped him, he'd make the priest look bad because the priest was his boss. So we don't really know, but we know that he passed him as well. And so then the story goes, there's a third person. Now, in the Jewish mindset, the order of level of piety would have been priest, Levite, and then a lay leader in the temple congregation. And so the thought would be that it would, the next would be a lay leader. But Jesus throws a curveball here, and it's not a lay leader, it's a Samaritan. Now, we don't grasp the cultural, the political, the racial um, differences in our culture between the Samaritan and the, uh, and the Jewish people there, and I don't have time to unpack it. But, I mean, just suffice it to say, it would be somebody who would be perceived to be so different that it would be um, almost an animosity towards, towards them. I mean, some might, might even view it like a terrorist, like today. 
They just would totally would have blown their mind. They would never have thought that like this terrorist would have stopped and, and would have helped this person because uh, there's great animosity. But this Samaritan, he comes and he pours in the oil and the wine, which has great symbolism. And he pours it in, he, he binds up his wounds and he takes him and he places him on his, on his donkey and he takes him down to Jericho and he, he pays for him to stay the night. And, and then the next day he he, he pays for him to stay as long as he needs. And he says, just, just keep tabs. When I come back through, I'll settle the account. I'll pay you. A great risk to himself. I mean, imagine this Samaritan. He shows up with a beaten up, half-dead Jewish guy on his horse. I mean, who would have known? He might have done it, right? Nobody knows. There's no witnesses to this. So he puts himself at risk. He puts himself out. But he does this, and he takes care of him. Remember, what's the What's the question? Who's your neighbor? And so then Jesus turns to this attorney and says, who is the neighbor? And the attorney, he's not going to say a Samaritan because that would have, like, blew their mind. He'd say, well, the one who responded in mercy and in compassion. Do you see how Jesus turned this? It started with, who's my neighbor? And Jesus turns it to, who are you? See, we want to know who's my neighbor. Who is it, you know, who do I really have to respond to? Who am I really responsible for? Who am I really have to do something? Who am I really accountable for to minister to them? And Jesus turns it, turns it on its head and says, that's not what's, that's not the issue. The issue is you. The issue is your heart. The issue is, am I a neighbor? Not who's my neighbor, but am I a neighbor? Am I a neighbor to those I come across? Am I a neighbor to those that I see broken and hurt? And can I excuse myself from that because they don't meet the definition of who I would say should or could require my help? We too want to justify ourselves and our behaviors like the attorney did. Well, that's not my problem. They're not my problem. That's, that's not my responsibility. And Jesus turned this and said, no, it's not about them. It's about you. It's about me. Am I a neighbor? Am I neighboring? Because we're already justified in Christ. We're already set apart in him. We're already empowered by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when you turn it like this, I'm telling you guys, it changes everything. We are salt and we are light. So how do we respond? How do we remove, how do we move this beyond the theoretical? How do we move this beyond the philosophical to everyday life? Well, I'm glad you asked. Thanks for asking. You see, when we try to love everyone, I think we often end up not loving anyone because it's just theoretical and it's just hypothetical. So I want to show you guys a graph, actually. In fact, will you get out your bulletins? If you'll get out your bulletins, uh, I think we have ushers prepared uh, to hand out um, these graphs. So if you, everybody get out your bulletins. We're going to do an exercise together. Get out your, your pen that you got with the bulletin. And um, if you have a, <clears throat> if you didn't get one, raise your hand. We have ushers here that are prepared to, to help distribute these. Yeah, go ahead, those that are helping. Go ahead and distribute these. Just keep your hands up. And we're going to uh, get these all distributed. And we want everybody to be able to participate in this. 
we run out, we still have some more? All right, won't everybody have an opportunity? While you're doing that, I'm going to eat another cough drop. Have a commercial break brought to you by Hall's Mentholiptus. All right, everybody getting their, uh, everybody got a pen, everybody got a, I think we got one more over here, Jerry. Got one more, a couple more over here in the aisle, middle aisle. Okay, so get these out. This right here, what I have done is, um, Lord's been working um, on this in my heart for the last several weeks. I've been thinking about these passages, praying about this, and I remembered that I had a book on my shelf uh, called The Art of Neighboring, and the sermon isn't a book report. It's not a summary of the book at all, but what I did was is I took the, uh, a graph that's in this book, and we, we photocopied it, and if you'll fill this out even and keep it, we're, next week we're going to give you a, a refrigerator magnet that you can use at your house as well, and I want you to fill out this form. Did everybody get one? Okay, go ahead and begin to fill this out. Fill out um, slot A, okay? Write down the names of the people who live and the house is represented by the boxes around you. Um, the, so the eight closest people to you. Now, you may live in more of a rural area. I know behind my house, uh, there's just one big property. So I've moved, um, I've thought of the closest eight. Or so, the, so two or three deep on either side for me because I only got one behind me. And so just begin to write those out. The names of the people who live in the house represented first, last if you know them. All right. Anybody here feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit? Boy, I know I did when I filled this out. I came up with with five of the eight. I know five of the eight are the names of those that live around me. Just let you know where I was when I filled this out the first time. All right, you guys, you guys filling those out? All right. Let's move on to letter B. Write down some facts about the person you couldn't know just by standing in your driveway. Like they drive a black Honda, does not count. They have red hair, doesn't count. Like for my neighbors right next to the door to me, I know he works for American National Insurance, and I know she is a fourth grade teacher in Ozark. In fact, she was my son-in-law's fourth grade teacher in Ozark. So I know that about my neighbors right next door. So what are some things about, go ahead and write those down, some things about your, man, a lot of you are just looking at me. This is, this means this is a good exercise. This is good. This is good. So as you guys are filling that out, anybody here get all eight on letter A? Anybody here get all eight on letter A? Okay, nobody. We had one person first service. Statistical average on the, the social scientists that did this uh, came up with 10%. 10% of people would know. So we're below average. So, yeah, me too. So, um, so B, write B down. So if nobody had all of A's, I'm just going to assume nobody has all of B's. All right? That would be 3% would only know that. And let's move on to letter C. In-depth information that you would know after connecting with them. Career plans, dreams, life goals, something meaningful, something beyond the surface level, something rather deep. Statistically, only 1% would know this, 1%. Do you guys see how practical this is? 
Jesus took on flesh and blood, moved into the neighborhood. He has strategically placed each of us in neighborhoods that may not look exactly like this map, but there's people around us. There's people, you could use this for your office. You could use this, you know, for uh, cubicles, for office desk. You'd use it for dorm rooms. I mean, this is transferable. It's the concept. Who are those that are closest to you? Because there's a paradigm we have to work through. Uh, will you do the next, we show the next screen that we have to move from stranger to acquaintance to relationship. That there's these bridges that we have to cross. We have to cross from from being a stranger to because you can't enter into a relationship with somebody without becoming acquainted with them, and and you're not going to be able to to lead them to Jesus or bring Jesus to them without having a relationship, and so you have to have an acquaintance. So so what we're talking about here is being really practical about how to move. So the very first thing is just to identify who they are and to identify something about get to know them. But how do you start, right? I mean, how do you start? You don't start by walking up, ringing their doorbell and saying, hi, my name is Jay and my pastor preached a sermon how we should get to know our neighbors, so I just wanted to introduce myself to you. I mean, you know, that's, don't do that when you get home, right? Like, that's not what to do. So, but I've been thinking about this. I'm like, Lord, how do I, <clears throat> excuse me, how do I get to know those that I don't know? How do I move beyond stranger to acquaintance? And so, just having this conversation with the Lord over the last several weeks, and yesterday, um, Heather and Maddie had been out shopping, and so they pulled in the garage. I go out and help them carry in the, the stuff from the store, and, and I'm get busy doing what I was doing. And then my uh, uh, phone rings. I, I don't answer it because I don't like to answer my phone. I don't like to answer my door, right? Because that's just how we are, right? But, but after I, I didn't answer, I got a text message. And in the text message, it said, uh, your dog, Buddy, is at my house, um, you know, I don't know if that's normal or if he's a wanderer, but if this is my address if you want to come get him. And so I walk out my front door, and I have to remember, okay, is it this way or this way? You know, because I never know which way, you know, the, the numbers are because I just go to my house. Um, and so, okay, it's this way. So I start walking, and it was one of the houses of one of the people on my map that I don't know. And I thought, how about that, Lord, that our dog who's deaf, who's crippled, who we can't even get to go outside, has walked down the street and has gone to a person's house that I don't know. And so I'm, so I'm walking over there. I'm like, okay, now, Lord, help me with this, right? Because I, how, do I, how do I start this conversation? I mean, how do I, because, I mean, I can just go up and get my dog and say, oh, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. I'll try to make sure it never happens again and then just leave, right? That's the easiest thing. But I know what I'm teaching tomorrow, which is today, Right? So I'm like, how do I do this, Lord? I don't know how to do this. Help me. Help me move from beyond stranger to acquaintance. <clears throat> so I introduced myself, and he introduced himself. His name's Ted. And so, so I, but I didn't know what to do, so I just, I just had the thought, Thanksgiving, because we just had Thanksgiving. And so I said, hey, Ted, how, how was your Thanksgiving? And he goes, well, the woman had her family over. <laughs> I mean, that right there told me a lot, right? I'm just like, all right, this is going to be fun. So we went, so me and the boys, we went Black Friday shopping because I just couldn't put up with them anymore. He goes, in fact, you know, there's a lot of guys out Black Friday shopping on Thursday nights. And I thought, interesting, I didn't know that. And, uh, but I got to start having a conversation. So we moved from stranger to acquaintance. 
because my dog ran off. But I seize the opportunity. And so then in my mind, I'm thinking, how do I build a relationship with this guy? What is something that we have in common? I mean, because this just, guys, this just doesn't happen just without intention. Otherwise, your whole sheet would have been filled out. You know what I'm saying? And so how do I move this to relationship with this guy that I just met, whose woman's family's hard to get along with, who I don't, normally I don't know if we'd really have a lot in common, but I'm looking around and he has, he has several motorcycles and he has a lot of parts and until he's working on bikes, I said, and he's tattooed, he has motorcycle, you know, shirts on and shirt on. And so I'm like, it's like, you like to ride? And I mean, duh, right? But <laughs> he indulged me, you know. And so we start, I just try to start a conversation about motorcycles and just, I don't know hardly anything about motorcycles, but just try to have this conversation. But what I do know is that my youngest son, Luke, has a dune buggy that's not running right, that's at his grandparents' farm. And so in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, I need to get the dune buggy over here so I can ask Ted to come over and look at the dune buggy so that I can ask him questions about the dune buggy, not so much for the dune buggy, but so that I can build a relationship with Ted. Does does that make sense? And so I'm thinking, how do I, so so that's the strategy I'm working to, to move from stranger to acquaintance with relationship with Ted that just started with Buddy running off. But you see, Jesus was flesh and blood and he moved in the neighborhood. And so I think so much of our Christianity is philosophical and theoretical. And Jesus is saying, let's be real. Let's start with being neighbors, not who is my neighbor. Am I a neighbor? Am I a neighbor? What if God really knows what he's doing? What if Jesus strategically placed each and every one of us exactly where we are so that we could make a difference in that exact place? Acts 17, 26 and 27 says this. From one man he made every nation of men, speaking of Adam. My voice is going out. That means I'm about to stop preaching. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole world earth, and he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. Have you ever thought about that? We know on a macro scale that's true, that he has set up time and space. He puts nations up. He brings nations down. But I believe not only the macro level it's true, but the micro level it's true as well, that you are here today. You're alive today on purpose. You weren't alive 100 years ago. You are not going to be alive 100 years from now. You're alive today with a purpose for today. You are where you are on purpose. You live where you live on a purpose. You work where you work on purpose. Do those things kind of change? They can. You can live in different places. You can work in different places. But wherever you are, that the Lord is setting that up. For you to be salt and light right where that is. Let me end with this. That motive is important. Motive is important. Because there's a difference between ulterior motive and ultimate motive. Okay, ulterior motive and ultimate motive. We have all been in relationships with people that had ulterior motives, haven't we? Can I hear about Amway? You know what I'm saying. If you sell Amway, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to pick on Amway. I'm just saying, everybody has been invited over for the opportunity of our life, right? 
You know what I'm saying? We've all that. You, if somebody has an ulterior motive, right? Like you, you feel it. Like you know it. You feel used. So we cannot be entering into relationships. We cannot be that. Cannot we cannot have an ulterior motive? But what we can have is an ultimate motive. And our ultimate motive could, and I would say should be, that every person we have a relationship with, that to the best of what our ability is, that we bring them closer to Jesus and we bring Jesus closer to them. That that's the ultimate motive in every relationship in our life, that we don't have an ulterior motive for being in people's life, but we have an ultimate motive for being in people's life. And if people don't respond to Christ right away, it doesn't mean we don't have a relationship with them. We're not around them because that's not our ulterior motive. We have an ultimate motive of being salt and being light in the places where God has placed us.